0: Today's episode is brought to you by Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol. You'll be hearing more about them later on. But for now, let's get into today's interview. Happy to welcome back to Forward Guidance, Joseph Wang of FedGuy.com and Monetary Macro, and Carolyn Sissoko, Senior Lecturer at the University of the West of England. Thank you both so much for for joining us. Carolyn, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me on. I'm really delighted to talk to you guys and delighted to meet Joe as well as you, Jack.
2: Thanks Thank, so much. Thanks By the way, guys, Carolyn is one of the best people when it comes to financial plumbing, has a long list of publications. I've learned from her, so I really look forward to our discussion.
0: Joseph, let's just start off. I unfortunately was sick last week, horrible timing, unable to, to cover. The, the, so we had to reschedule our interview. What was your takeaway? I think you called this the biggest Fed meeting of the year. I mean, soft landing, inflation falls, Fed's going to cut not because there's a recession, but because inflation's falling. I mean, that's it's pretty big news, right?
2: Yeah, I that this Fed meeting seems to really have changed the entire landscape, right? Ever since this past Fed meeting, we've seen basically all assets zoom higher. Equity is higher, bond prices higher, gold higher, everything is higher, except the dollar, of course. In the months heading towards December, they were already kind of sitting the ground, a quote unquote pivot. And so the way that the Fed thinks about the world is through the lens of real interest rates. So over the past year, inflation has been trending lower, right? And real interest rates are nominal interest rates minus expected inflation. And as inflation has gradually come down and nominal rates have stayed where they are, that means that technically you are tightening monetary policy because real interest rates are going higher as inflation trends lower. So the Fed was basically teeing up telling everyone that this is how they view the world. And, And so the expectation heading in was basically that the Fed is probably going to start cutting rates next year, that the high in interest rates was in. That expectation was cemented when Governor Waller, who does a great job and has been pretty hawkish over the past year, endorsed this line of reasoning. So everyone heading into the meeting was thinking that, you know, this is going to be the end of rate hikes, and maybe we'll have some cuts next year. And heading into the meeting, we had about, four cuts priced into the market. Now at the meeting, you know, we saw the dot plots. The dot plots were pricing in three cuts next year. That's more than it was in the last dot plot. So the last dot plot, there's two cuts priced next year. This dot plot, there's priced in three. And Chair Powell seemed to, you know, didn't really push against any loosening in financial conditions and so forth. And so the market seemed to take one look at that and just ran with it. And after the meeting, they were pricing in six rate cuts next year, which is much more, like twice as much as the Fed's dot plot suggests. But that amount of rate cuts priced in just really, really loosened financial conditions. So that's basically set off asset risk assets, like a rocket ship, really. Now, the day after we had John Williams, third person, third most important person at the Fed, president of the New York Fed, come out and try to temper that enthusiasm a bit. But if you actually listen to that interview, and I recommend you do, it's just eight minutes on CNBC, you know, it's coming... To me, it came across as this really dovish guy pretending to be a hawk. And so he didn't really move markets at all. So I think this is going to be the setting that we go into next year. It seems like the Fed really is going to be dovish.
0: Thank you, Joseph. Professor, I want your overall thoughts on, on the meeting, but also just on the transme- transition transmission mechanism of interest rates to markets and the, the overall economy. You do a, a lot of work on more slightly more you know less understood transmission mechanisms, like the collateral multiplier, but just on the sort of vanilla, how interest rates affect the economy and financial markets, and then also how Federal Reserve officials going on CNBC talking about it, how that shapes forward expectations, forward guidance. yeah, what, what are your overall uh, thoughts on it as well as just any other thoughts you might have on this potential soft landing that the Federal Reserve might have achieved?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I do think it is uh, wonderful that the Fed has achieved such great soft landing with, you know, really amazing employment statistics that I don't think anybody was expecting, at least not to the degree I mean, the, 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 that they actually achieved, that that ha- has been excellent. They recognize they have a soft landing. They recognize they have room to lower rates in the future. I Personally, I'm probably one of the few people who thinks they should be more constrained in lowering rates in the future. That I think we need a period of normalized rates, if you want. Um, and I, I, this is not a prediction. I, I'm probably it's not it's that's not what I think is likely to happen. But I actually think that one of the main effects of the healthy effects of having raised interest rates is it really has led to this adjustment in terms of a lot of firms that have been very heavily reliant on debt are suddenly like, oh, we might have more refinancing problems. And you have this whole situation where we start to get what I would consider a somewhat more realistic approach to what is a reasonable level of debt for the firms in our economy. And I think one of the problems that arises if you do have like aggressive six interest rate cuts or something like that, I think once again, then you end up just subsidizing a, hub, a heavily indebted a corporate sector that to me creates more bankruptcy risk in the corporate sector than is healthy. And I, that's not, I think, most people's opinion, but I actually think we have I I, I would like to see a more conservatively run corporate sector and therefore i think a longer period of higher interest rates would actually be healthier for the economy but at the same time i think holding them steady a few cuts that's great but i certainly hope that we don't see six cuts
2: i think most of the fed officials would agree with you they they hope that the market is just being too aggressive as well they definitely don't want sure. them don't want the market to think that the fed will be cutting six times next next year. It's part of the reason why there's damage control. Uh, That's a really good, interesting point you make. Are you saying that if, for example, capital costs are higher, that encourages discipline on firms so that they won't overextend themselves so that we'll overall have a healthier uh, corporate sector?
1: It's good to leave behind low for long. Like I want that just gone and buried so that firms don't have this sense that, oh, well, you know, I can, yeah, I, I, I'm not being, you know, I, things aren't working out that well, but I can always refinance my debt. There's always more money to keep my activities going. And when you're close to zero interest rates, that is kind of the environment they're in. And I think it's actually healthier for the corporate sector to have to pay a notable interest rate that actually is good for savers too. I mean, you know, I'm really happy with what's going on with my money market funds right now. And I think there's a whole sector of the investing community that actually, it will be very good if we can normalize rates. And I think having a corporate sector that is accustomed to having to pay interest rates of between 5 and 10%, that kind of thing, that would be amazing. That would be really, really healthy for our corporate sector, for them to have to renormalize to that kind of an environment.
0: So, Professor, uh, sorry, implicit uh, in your characterization there is, is uh, the, the claim uh, that when interest rates are low, Corporations have much lower debt burdens; they can get away with investments that have a much lower return. Uh, you know, in other words, you can have kind of a, a, a bubble in private equity and venture capital. All sorts of harebrained schemes get funded that wouldn't normally, when interest rates are at the you know proper level of of five percent, the his, historical level. I would, I would empirically, you know, what have you seen over the past two years? That would either support or challenge that that characterization. And if I mischaracterized your view, I was kind of intentionally uh, caric- caricaturing it because you know I had anticipated and, and expected. Okay, wow, the Federal Reserve is raising rates, and they're really going very you know very intensely. I sort of anticipated and expected corporate America and the American private household and the housing market to sort of experience pain. And I think you know many. I was just following kind of mainstream, you know, ec, you know, the Wall Street economic economists were were as well. And the pain didn't materialize. I mean, the stock market has risen precipitously this year alongside interest rates, and all of these private equity firms they are doing well as well. And on paper, at least, the the companies which they have funded with you know extremely large amounts of debt, floating rate debt, probably private equity hasn't broken five five and a half percent interest rates has not broken private equity, corporate America, you know, we, we now learn that, you know, households and um, the American corporate sector, in many ways, uh, they actually are long rate, they like you are, are long interest rates, not short interest rates. And they as, as interest rates rose, they had a lot, you know, Apple's earning a lot of money on its cash. So this sort of this, this implosion that 5% would catalyze hasn't appeared. And, and I wonder uh, your, just your overall thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, well, I have to admit, I think anybody who thought one to two years of 5% would cause an implosion doesn't understand the debt structure of corporate America because the debt is usually originated at like a five to seven year term. Because of that, it's actually when the refinancing has to come around, right? So that's going to be the key thing. Well, most of these firms, you know, a large portion of them, they don't have refinancing deadlines coming up. So one to two years actually does not have a huge effect right? You actually need some kind of a normalization. Like, I I mean, if we kept interest rates at like 4% for five or six years, that's when I think you'd see the restructuring of corporate America. As long as we don't kind of, if, if we start dropping down below 2% again, I, I, I think the whole idea that restructuring would happen, you, you, you're getting back into kind of subsidizing the restructuring activities. So we need to keep interest rates at something you know, closer to 4% or slightly below it for a period of like five to seven years. And that's when you're going to start seeing fallout. And I think it would be a healthy fallout. I think there are a whole bunch of firms that we want to actually think about how to actually reduce the debt structure of these firms and not put them through bankruptcy, but put them through bankruptcy in a way that you end up with even more excessive leverage on the firms. I mean, I, I, to be honest, Twitter is one of the firms where you're still sitting there crass scratching your heads. How the heck was it able to borrow that much money? Really? I mean, where? I mean, and, and yet this is how restructuring happens frequently. In the U.S. system, there's just so much money out there that they're able, that the firms are able to borrow that it doesn't make a lot of sense when you. I mean, like in the same, I think Twitter is the one that a lot of us can just see where we're all sitting there, really scratching our heads at what these banks were thinking, getting themselves into this.
0: Yeah, you're talking about the, the loans that were not collateralized by Tesla stock, right?
1: Yeah, well, but I mean, even collaterals, I mean, it's, it's yeah, I, I'm actually, it's just the amount of the debt load that you're talking about. It doesn't seem like it was something that could possibly have been viable. And, and it just seemed like they were setting, the banks were setting themselves up to lose money. And, you know, even if they, you know, they shouldn't be gambling on the stock market, if it's, it's the oh, Tesla stock will secure us. I mean, you know, that that also, that oh, that's not the kind of lending I want to see the banks doing. I would really like to see a fallout of the whole interaction of massive bank lending, effectively supporting the equity. I mean, granted, they're actually in the form of bonds, but because of the term nature of how, how this is operating and because uh, a firm goes through bankruptcy and then it just gets a whole bunch of new bank loans to another set of owners. I mean, the banks are actually really involved in essentially allowing our corporate sector to function the way it is. And, you know, I come from an understanding of 19th century banking principles And I actually think our economy would work better for everybody. And in particular for, I think, small to medium-sized firms, which is where I think you can get the most effective growth if you can get the banks to actually start saying, oh, I want to be able to lend well to the smaller sector firms, right? I want to be able to make sure that It's the smaller scale, very innovative new businesses that they're not going to be cash constrained. And instead, you know, businesses are buying, borrowing on credit cards at interest rates that have nothing to do with that wonderful, you know, the low rates that we were talking about. That's not what you get if you end up running your business on a credit card, right? Why does that even need to happen, right? That means the banks aren't even focusing on the sector of the economy to me that would provide the most benefit for growth and for productivity in the economy. And I, I guess I, I, I come from this historical background where I'm like, I want to see the banks doing something completely different. And when they're involved in billion-dollar loans to big businesses, I I just, I, I think they're focused on the wrong thing. And I actually think it's created huge distortions in our economy.
0: Absolutely. What, what is it about... Our society, the economic incentive structure that makes it so that banks want to be in the business of lending to giant you know American corporations or to finance their 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 you know a takeover a leverage buyout rather than lending to small and medium sized firms. you know I think it probably is more risky to to be a banker for a small and medium sized firm than it is for for apple computers. What was it about in the past that made it that you know them be small bankers and and this this move from Banking small firms to banking large firms, you you know, was it just a change, a change in in regulation, and and how could we reverse it?
1: So I have a a paper out on looking at how we got to the corporate structure we have, and in particular the bank finance corporate structure that we have, and I, I actually tie it into too big to fail. For me, too big to fail starts in 1974 with the bailout of Franklin National Bank, and essentially a commitment on the part of the Federal Reserve and other bank regulators. It has to be cooperative with FDIC to ensure that banks that are interactive on international Eurodollar markets will not impose losses on uh, foreign investors, basically. It's part of kind of the dollar dominance policy that came out of the collapse of Bretton Woods. So we've had too big to fail since then. And then you, that led the banks, especially the biggest banks that were active on the London market, to have really amazing funding opportunities. In other words, there's just so much funding after the too big to fail policy for these banks that they got into the uh, developing country lending in a way that everybody could see. I mean, if you read people's comments, everybody knew it was heading for a disaster in the late 1970s. Like, I mean, you, you can just read what the Fed chairman were saying. And they're like, this is not looking good, right? They knew the banks weren't managing their loans well, but they were making it it was helpful when they make these big syndicated loans they get lots of fees they get higher interest rates and then they don't need to to bother finding ways to use their funding in small ways they can lend in hundreds of million dollar loans and now it's billion dollar loans and and that's you know so it's it it's less costly in terms of origination well so that worked until 1982 and LDC crisis and they're like, oh, we have this wonderful syndicated loan structure, and they just turn the taps over to private equity and to leverage buyouts. Like literally, that's when the leverage loans took off, was as soon as they couldn't use their syndicated loans to finance LDCs anymore, they turned the tap to leverage buyout funding, and it's been going on ever since. The growth in leverage loans is more or less continuous since 1983. So I think it's all tied into too big to fail, and essentially the bank's having so much funding that they didn't actually even want to figure out how to do small loans. I mean, small loans were expensive in the sense that they take careful origination at a small scale. And it's a lot easier to originate, you know, $1 billion loan. And then they're also getting a lot more fees from those loans. They get fees on all the different sides of a syndicated loan system. So it's not just a simple loan. So they're, it's part of the whole too-big-to-fail structure. And of course, the question is, how do you wind back too big to fail? And that is easily one of the biggest questions for our time. How do you start to force banks not to be so big that they, in some sense, can hold a gun to the Federal Reserve's head? You know, I mean, they can say, you know, I'm I'm holding the economy hostage, so now you need to bail me out. And I, I, I think the 2008 crisis really showed to me that the Fed was much less in the Directory position than it should have been, and clearly the regulators and the Financial Stability Board have done an immense amount of work to try to bring things back under control since 2008. But until they actually successfully tackle too big to fail, which I think everyone can agree is one of the things they have not successfully tackled since 2000, I I, I really am not convinced that we have a healthy financial system that is designed to promote productivity. In our economies, I think it ends up being a financial system that is essentially directed by what the big, big too-big-to-fail banks are doing with their money. And in theory, the regulators can try and shape what they're doing in different ways. But for example, in 2013 and 2014, the Fed tried to take control of leverage lending and tried to cut it back. And actually, wasn't really successful. The banks are always finding channels to get around tighter regulations, and um, you know. And then, of course, there are also it's, it's always a complex political situation too. Trump, the Trump administration, and its willingness to have lax rules for the banks also weaken the regulator's position and that kind of thing. But but all of these things play a role in how strict regulation can be and whether it can really reform the banking system the way it would need to be reformed for us to have a more secure stable system
0: interesting professor it sounds like you still think the the issue of too big to fail is on the credit side more than the interest rate risk or, or duration side or convexity side, and you reference the the huge changes to the banking system because of regulation after the great financial crisis, where excuse me banks had to hold a lot more capital, there was different risk weighting for assets you know the assets that tanked the global economy in two thousand and eight suddenly have a much more a higher risk rate, which is appropriate interestingly, you know treasuries had a zero risk weight agency mortgage backed security, so basically no credit risk, but lots of interest rate risk i think had a Twenty percent risk weight, so low. Although it, it depends on the mortgage-backed securities. Joseph, I feel like, and maybe I'm, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a boomer in that. I'm still focused on interest rate risk in the banks, and that that problem has been solved. I mean, you know, bank equity is looking a lot better now that interest rates have have really collapsed, and and the, the assets they own are are you know the market their market value is is worth more. But when I think of too big to fail in the banking system, at least in the year of 2023, I mean we only got a few more. Days left. I think of interest rate risks. Joseph, do, do you also agree that too big to fail is an issue on the credit side? Because you know, when I when I look at yes, these banks are originating these huge syndicated loans, but they are retaining so much, you know, fewer.
2: No, you're absolutely right, Jack. I think so. Uh, banks are much more highly regulated today than than pre. And the Fed actually has. I've seen research that shows that when the banks lend, yes, they, they, it's syndicated and all that, but. The part that they retain usually is the one that's highly rated, and maybe ratings aren't good, but but it's exactly as you mentioned, Jack. The banks, because of these rating systems, try to obtain uh, the, the most highly rated piece of those loans. But I, I like that idea of too big to fail, because when I look back this past year, uh, like you mentioned, we had this panic earlier in the year because of a bank that didn't manage their interest rate risk very well. And the result of that panic, I recall, is that people took money out of these regional banks and they all rushed into JPM and Bank of America, basically made too big to fail even more a big, right? Because everyone knows that these huge g they're basically implicitly backed by the government. They're too big to fail. And that advantage is huge at a time when people are not confident about their own local bank. So in a sense, it entrenches that problem. Now, the professor's conversation about large assets reminds me to another conversation you had with Chris Whalen where he mentioned that big banks want to have big assets, right? And that makes sense. If you have like a $3 trillion balance sheet, you're probably not going to be making a lot of mom and pop loans. You want those big corporate loans uh, for fees and, and so forth, as the professor mentioned. I, I wonder, is a solution to this, to a way to make the banking system more responsive to the public? Is it to have actually just more banks? It's hard to stop too big to fail, but maybe we could create more banks. Uh, for example, in the US, we have, Let's say 4,000-something commercial banks, another 4,000 credit unions. That's much, much more than anywhere else in the world. But it's also trending lower, steadily trending lower, actually, because of consolidation. Uh, maybe if we have more small banks, the banking system could get around too big to fail and become more responsive to 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 the public.
0: That's the very thoughtful, Joseph. And Professor, I may take that step further and say, if America is unique in that we have all of these banks... How come we don't have this problem? You know, we've got thousands of banks. Why? How come those small banks aren't, you know, providing credit to small and big? I know they are, but how can we still have this this issue?
1: One of the things I wanted to bring up just before I start talking about too big to fail, but about this whole issue of the credit risk of the banks. I think there's always a huge mistake that goes on when we talk about bank origination of syndicated loans, that you're worried about what the banks hold on their balance sheets. To me, that's not the issue at all. I'm not worried about bank failure. I don't care about the individual banks. I'd like to see a too big to bail bank fail and actually go away because I think that'd be good for too, to to end too big to, to 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 encourage the ending of too big to fail. But I think the real thing is. It's not about focusing on the individual bank and individual bank stability. It's about the macroeconomy, right? What are the banks doing by originating this kind of loan? And what kind of loan does the macroeconomy need the banks to originate, right? So I think you're just you're not really even asking the right question when you're worried about, is there too much credit risk on the books of the bank? Because then you're thinking about the individual banks. We need to change this to a macroeconomic and what do we need funded from a macroeconomic perspective kind of question? So I, I think there's there are kind of the two sides. And I, I mean, of course, the bank regulators are worried about individual bank stability as well. And I, I'm not going to say they shouldn't be. But well, first of all, the U.S. does have a good population of small banks that has been remarkably steadily shrinking for the past 30 or 40. I would also point out, however, that Germany also has a very interesting banking sector. And if you want a model of small banking, some of the German cooperative sectors and the ways they're run actually are, are very interesting. But I think the real thing to keep in mind here is that the way capital requirements and regulatory requirements and government, the protection that has been provided for the debt of the banks that are active on international markets. And even, you know, when we talk about the growth of market-based lending and the growth of commercial paper, that was all, those are all regulatory giveaways to the big banks. The finger has been put on the U.S. system to encourage the growth of big banks for decades. Right. And it's been done so both because of the official promotion of what is called market-based lending, but actually ends up being funding mechanisms. If you're talking about money market funds are funding mechanisms for the biggest banks and not the small banks, right? A commercial paper issued by non-financial corporations, they have to pay fees to the big banks to give them liquidity protection right? And they can only, and it's only the big banks who are able to sell that. So all of these things that we call market-based finance are actually subsidies to the big banks. So if you want to actually see the smaller banking sector grow, you'd need to A, reverse the subsidies to the big banks at the regulatory structure, and B, probably try and have some subsidies, some encouragement of the growth of, uh, of the smaller banks. And one of the things in the back of my head that I haven't formalized yet is the idea that maybe if the Fed were to go for a central bank digital currency, that would be an incredible tool for shifting funding the way it wanted to in terms of it could pull funding out of the big banks by simply saying they can't pay an in- competitive interest rate and then put, by allowing smaller banks to pay a more competitive interest rate. It could allow the funding to flow in, in a, less, a less biased way towards the big banks. And I think that's the real thing. We need to figure out how to shift funding flows away from what we saw after SVB. The so-called market is making the funding flows go to SVB. But in fact, it's not market-based at all. It's regulatory-based, right? It's a regulatory-driven flow to the big banks because the regulators have such strong favors for the big banks.
0: And explain that. It's because people are, money is flooding to JP Morgan because if JP Morgan goes, their money is going to be safe. And it's not because JP Morgan itself is by its own uh, strength safe.
1: It's going there, I think, first and foremost, because it is recognized as a too big to fail bank that it will be protected by regulators. I mean, obviously, between the big banks, some of them are better run than others. Some of them do have better balance sheets than others. And, you know, so I'm not going to sit here and start saying that, you know, a preference for J.P. Morgan over Citibank or Wells Fargo might not be because of a sense of it being better run, right? But I don't think we should think about your local community bank as being on the same playing field as J.P. Morgan. It simply is not from a regulatory perspective on the same playing field because, JP Morgan has access to so many other ways of making money, whether it's, you know, providing liquidity facilities to non-financial corporations, you know, being in the biggest participant in a syndicated loan and not being someone who maybe can buy a tiny little portion of a syndicated loan, which is what a smaller bank would be, have access to on that market. You know, all of the, there are all kinds of fee-based things that, that, I mean, we call it a market-based system but it's a market-based system that promotes too big to fail banks. I mean, you just, you just need to look at where all the fee flows are funding are, are flowing when you look at the structure of all of these market-based assets. And on almost every single one of them, the too big to fail banks are drawing fee income from them. And usually in five different ways, maybe also by providing derivative protections. And you know there are all kinds of different ways that the too big to fail banks are drawing money out of what is officially called a market-based system, but it's 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 so intertwined with the banks that it's really about what the regulators have chosen to have grow, and I don't think it's conscious. I mean, I don't. I I, I think they literally were thinking of it as a market-based system, but there hasn't been enough attention paid to the fact that we don't have a market-based system at all. We have a bank-based system, right, where all each of our market-based funding mechanisms is totally and completely integrated with and dependent upon a variety of different kinds of bank funding from the two big-to-fail banks.
2: So just to be <laughs> clear, so let, let's say that I go and I float out a bond or something like that. It appears to be a market-based mechanism, but at the end of the day, the investor who buys that is gets their funding from a bank. So in in a sense, you're saying that it's still, at the end of the day, it's still bank financing. It's just that you have this, I guess, one step removed or two steps removed from it.
1: There are a lot of different scales on which we can think about this. And I have to admit, when I think, of, I, I think bond finance is perhaps a less... Key aspect of how corporations are funding themselves than loans, right? Remember, there's this huge growth of the leveraged loans and just other kinds of loans that are now being placed in credit funds, right? And that whole segment of debt, right? It's bank originated, okay? Now, there are also commercial bonds that are can be at a further remove from the banking system. But you also need to pay attention to some more complex aspects, because, for example, if you want to think about the whole growth of junk bonds, that was totally integrated with the growth of leveraged loans, right? The junk bond market did not grow without an accompanying growth. Of the leveraged loan market. And the, there's no way they would have been able to sell anywhere near as many lever- uh, junk bonds as were sold in the 1980s when it took off if it wasn't for the banks being deeply involved in almost every single deal where the junk bonds were originated, right? So if the banks are providing 50% of the financing for the structure and the junk bonds are providing 20% of the funding for the structure, I don't think it's fair to say that that the junk bonds are really separate from the bank finance, right? And so you really need to sit down and get into the guts of how each of these deals is structured to see whether or not those bonds are, you know, what we have in our minds coming out of like a long tradition of capital markets with equity issues and bond issues, but ones where... Banks weren't allowed to play the role that they're playing in long-term finance, right? There was a, a, so where I'm coming from is an understanding of what what were the structures in the 19th and the 20th century, right up until the 1970s and 80s, that created a very clear separation between your capital markets, where you had equity issues and bond issues, and your money markets, and that separation has been almost completely obliterated. But if you were to talk, and I have a paper in the Financial History Review where I point out that the 2008 crisis would have been predicted by any 19th century British banker, right? I mean, it was, just, it, it was completely against all of the principles of separation of money markets, which are very bank-based and all about how do you stabilize the value of your assets. And capital markets, which in our traditional system are supposed to be where price discovery takes place. So you can't really have an integration of money markets with capital markets and of bank finance with capital markets without having a very weird interplay between this environment where we need stable values on the money market. And that's the whole idea of, you know, we need stability. We need bank stability, what the banks are investing. in. We need all of this stuff to be fairly stable. But in traditional Anglo-American markets, the capital markets are supposed to operate very independently of that so you can get price discovery. We have taken away all of the barriers that used to exist between our money markets and our capital markets. And it, it's, it's essentially incommensurate because those barriers are what made it possible to have lots of liquidity that promotes growth in the economy coming at the smaller scale, the short-term scale in the money markets, Right. Well, at the same time, having effective price discovery on your equity and your bond markets. But at this point, every, the banks are playing in both markets. And to me, that's a fundamental problem with the structure of the way our economy is operating. And I would basically say we, would, we need to find a way to rebuild some of the separations. I, I, we need a new glass tea.
0: You see this as an issue, even though banks are much less dependent on money market funding than they were prior to the great financial crisis.
1: Well, okay. So when I talk about money markets, I'm talking about them more broadly. I consider deposit-based funding as, as part of the whole integral of uh, how that sector of the financial system works, basically. And I agree, they're, they're, they're relying less on wholesale funding and more on deposit-based funding. And um, that's good in its own way. But I'm much more worried about how, where are the banks putting those funds? And if the banks are putting those funds in capital market type things or promoting or being very deeply involved in the way capital markets are operating, which I think there's no question that they are in the modern system i I, I think that we we, we are lo- we, you end up losing your anchor for what is value basically so I, I do think that there there's a lot of a question of the ability of banks to create liquidity if they're able to keep putting them into capital markets essentially you get into your classic repo-based feedback loop where the banks can justify additional lending because the asset values have gone up right and then and that cycle is continuous it's actually the foundation for the real bills doctrine in the 19th century It was precisely to avoid those kinds of cycles. That's what the real bills doctrine is about. The whole real bills principle is essentially we need a division between bank finance and this massive bank liquidity that banks can provide because they're able to create money and our longer term finance. Because if you don't have that, you end up with this bank finance of assets that then increase in value and justify incur, uh, an increase in the bank finance of assets. And it's just not clear where this ends, right? It's not clear where the meaningful value in the economy comes if banks can create money and if they're allowed to get into this cycle where asset b- b- prices just, j- just justify an increase in this money creation. And, I mean, we saw the dynamic that that created in U.S. mortgage markets, when it went out of control in 2008. But it's basically an underlying dynamic that continues in our economy because we're not addressing the underlying problem. The bank liquidity is actually something you need to pay a lot of attention to, and it needs to be carefully controlled where it flows.
0: Hey everyone, today's interview is brought to you by Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol an environmental solution for Bitcoin. This is something you won't want to miss, especially if you're an asset manager with an ESG focus. You might be eyeing Bitcoin, but are hesitant because of its significant and growing energy use. That's where Sustainable Bitcoin Protocol comes in. They've developed something called a Sustainable Bitcoin Certificate, or SBC for short. SBC turns Bitcoin into the ultimate ESG asset. These SBCs are not just another digital asset. They make your Bitcoin holdings climate positive, and even verify the use of clean energy from leading publicly traded miners listed on NASDAQ. They're carefully engineered to support clean energy miners, fuel renewable energy projects, and help you meet those ESG goals that are so critical today. This isn't some pie in the sky idea. It's actionable, it's credible, and it's here now. If you're looking to align your Bitcoin investments with your sustainability goals, look no further. Interested? Speak with your preferred OTC desk, BitGo, Copper, or other leading custody providers, or visit www.sustainablebtc.org. Thanks, and let's get back to the interview.
2: Something that perked my interest is that, Professor, you mentioned that maybe CBDCs are one of the things that could help us uh, correct this distortion. H- could you expand on that a little bit more?
1: Well, I think... One of the main concerns that central banks have and one of the reasons they're going very cautiously with the idea of investigating central bank digital currencies is that you run the risk of defunding the banking system, right? You run the risk that people will say, oh, I'd prefer to hold a central bank digital currency and they will choose no longer to hold deposits, right? And and in particular, if there's any kind of a crisis, it may make your runs much more severe. And that's just, you know, if you read any of the literature on, you know, what are the concerns about central bank digital currencies, that's one of the key concerns. And I guess I would say, well, wait a minute, if we're worried about our too-big-to-fail banks that tend to get flows of deposits that are just in, further encourage the too-big-to-fail banking, all you really need to do is have a central bank digital currency that you don't allow the too-big-to-fail banks to compete with very effectively through a regulatory mechanism, such as controls on the interest rate you can pay on your deposits. And you could actually fairly easily create a defunding mechanism for your too-big-to-fail banks, right? So basically, if if the regulators decide they want to take control of too-big-to-fail, a central bank digital currency gives them a tool that they could use to do that mainly because they could create a regulatory system where it's no longer advantageous to fund the too big to fail banks through deposits and once you draw the deposit base out of the too big to fail banks I don't think they can survive
0: then you have now stable coins private stable coins competing with bank deposits obviously it's it's small now but I wonder if central bank digital currency has to happen because the Federal Reserve said, hey, we can't let these private actors who they're not even they're not even banks. And I wonder, I mean, if the Federal Reserve is taking deposits from, you know, everyday citizens like, you know, you, you or me, is are they they are they being used to fund the purchase of treasuries? I mean, th- then we have some some issues of, you know, monetizing debt and, and stuff like that. I guess I guess now now let's turn turn to balance sheet policy. And the Federal Reserve's balance sheets, quantitative easing, owning assets, now of course reducing its balance sheet via via quantitative tightening. Joseph, you've done you shared your thoughts recently your most recent post on on fedguide.com about the Federal Reserve's potential of continuing to reduce its balance sheet via quantitative tightening as it lowers rates, which would be in some, you know, reg- regards to p- policies pushing against each other. Quantitative tightening is a tightening policy. And cutting rates, obviously, is a loosening policy. And normally the Fed likes to travel in both directions on this front, but this time could be special this time around. And last week, Powell gave some hints to a a very interesting question at the end of of last week's FOMC presser. Can you share your thoughts on the thinking behind that policy as well as the plumbing of if it's feasible, which you've done a lot of work on?
2: Yeah, Jack, I think you you described it very well. I think traditionally the Fed wants to move its two tools together at the same direction. So its two tools are interest rate policy, adjusting the overnight rate, and their balance sheet. In the past, whenever the Fed is doing QE, they're in a cutting cycle. And whenever they're doing QT, they're in a hiking cycle. The idea is that you don't want to step on the gas and the brakes at the same time, as you mentioned. And this is kind of like Fed tradition, Fed dogma. And if you listen to, say, former Vice Chair Kalirita, He thinks that part of the reason why the Fed was slow to hike rates during our recent inflationary episode was because of this dogma, because they they were still expanding their balance sheet and they didn't want to hike rates. And so since then, I think there's been a global rethink, not just in the Fed, but uh, across the world, whether or not these two tools always have to work in the same direction. I think the co- the conclusion that the Fed is coming to is that, no, they don't. And Chair Powell in the press conference, the last question before he ran off stage, was these two things are on, quote unquote, independent tracks. So you can do rate cuts even as you shrink the balance sheet. And just as interesting, Madame Lagarde, president of the ECB at the most recent press conference, also basically said the same thing. We're going to do this balance sheet thing and we're going to do this rate thing and they're going to be separate. So, I think there's a big movement now to delink the two so that they can have more flexibility to shrink the balance sheet, even as I think the sense is that the central banks, they think that their balance sheet is way too big and they want to get it down to a smaller size. I think they feel like they don't really understand what the balance sheet does. And so they feel more comfortable if they just rely on interest rate policy, which they think that they understand better. And this can definitely be done. It's not going to be a problem. I think what's going to happen probably is that, so the Fed is going to tell everyone that they're going to be quote unquote normalizing interest rates. So, what that means is that right now they're in a very, very restrictive stance. They want, they have their Fed funds rate far above what they think of as neutral. And as they gradually de- cut rates, they're going to be more and more towards neutral, which you can think of as normal. And at the same time, the balance sheet is too large. And so you can shrink it more and more towards a quote unquote normal size, just basically just above the minimum level of reserves, assuming that's normal, then you can basically have both tools linked towards a new concept of normalization rather than towards each other. So that, that seems to be the current thinking at the Fed. And that could change, but I, I do sense that there's a global determination for them to find ways, invent reasons to shrink their balance sheet.
0: Yeah. And will that result in a higher ratio of assets to money or of collateral to money than you have during quantitative easing when, you know, I mean, w- Joseph, you, we know, we're, we're on the side, quantitative easing, that's printing money. And <laughs> there's more money when there's more quantitative easing.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, when you're, when you're running down your balance sheet, you're decreasing your assets and you're decreasing your liabilities, which tend to be reserves. You know, they're, they're, on a level perspective, they'll both come down together. The cash, though, the currency, the, that just keeps going higher and higher because people like to, some people like to hold paper dollars, not just in the U.S., but abroad as well. For example, if some country in South America really does dollarize, I imagine they're going to need a lot of currency and currency only comes from one place. So that could go, continue to go higher. But generally, when you speak to shrink the balance sheet, reserves decline. So we think of that as printing as money and assets decline as well.
0: And how does that shape your outlook on bond, you know, sort of the, the bond markets? And there's two schools of thought. One is that it's, it's all about supply and demand. If there's way more supply than there is demand for bonds, yields will go way up, as they did, as they have over the past two years. The other is that the Federal Reserve has a lot more control than they let on. They always could, you know, monetize the debt, and they, you know, in, you know they can control long-term interest rates by for guidance as well as balance sheet policy or the the hint of balance sheet policy you have you know have been a very noted a noted bond bear over the past 2 years a, a take that has you know needless to say aged very well how and, and and that was because both there was way more of a supply of bonds than there was demand as well as the fed was raising rates so i guess which of those do you think is the more important factor and then now that going forward the federal reserve will be cutting rates However, there still could be an excess of supply of bonds relative to demand. How are you? You know, basically, I'm asking: Are you still a bond bear, and
2: why? It's been painful being a bond bear the past months, Jack. I'll tell you that. <laughs> but you, Joseph,
0: you've been, you've been, you know, it's like you can afford to, you can afford the pain because you've been right for you know twenty-three yeah. months. So, so uh,
2: yeah, it's been a good run for the past two years. So I, so I fall into the school of, of course, rates being determined ultimately by supply and demand, right? The supply of treasury bonds, as we all know, is very large and continues to grow. Demand demand is something that's a bit more dynamic. So the Federal Reserve definitely has a big influence on bond prices because the way that you price a bond, part of it is your expectation of the path of policy going forward. And when you look at short-term interest rate futures, you can see that a big, big part of the recent decline in the 10-year yield is that the market has strongly repriced the path of Fed policy going forward. The market is thinking, like we mentioned earlier, that the Fed will cut six times next year. And the, I guess the longer-term rate of Fed policy is, was also revised lower. So that, that's doing a lot of work to, to keep longer-dated yields lower. Now, I suspect that going forward, though, two things will happen. One is that the premium that the market demands to hold Treasury securities is going to rise so that the so if you think of the bond prices, bond yields as broken down by expectation of the path of Fed policy, as well as the premium, I expect the premium to continue to rise because of all the supply that's coming on. It has already been rising over the past couple of months, even, even as yields have been declining. The way that I measure this is the swap threads between yields and basically the expectation of policy. So that's one aspect. The other aspect is that I'm, I'm thinking that inflation is going to be sticky around 3% going forward. And so the market's view that we'll just quickly go back down to 2% and everything will be as it is, is just not going to happen. So I, I think, personally, I think it's really hard to see how inflation can stabilize towards 2%. If you have significant amounts of deficit spending, that's just basically going to continue forever. And at the same time, of course, we have these structural forces of decreasing supply of labor and potentially potentially, a big A bit of a deglobalization wave that's happening. So we'll see. Going forward, though, I think in the very near term, I think what's notable is that we are, many countries in the world, from China to the Eurozone, seem to be trending into recession, and that's going to decrease demand. And so that's going to have a deflationary impulse just for the next few months. But eventually, though, they're turning a corner, and so will we, and the deficit spending and all that will continue. So I think, structurally speaking, I am definitely a bond bearer. It for me it's very difficult to imagine how uh rates cannot go higher in the next few years uh, but that also reminds me I, I would like to hear what does what what's professor's viewpoint on just the significant amount of deficit spending we see in the world and that that seems to be a big trend change since from the world that we were in the past where there were many people concerned with the balanced budget and so forth does does that and at the same time of course when we we're talking about the financial system we also have a lot more i i guess less liquidity in the markets because of Basel III limitations, less dealer balance sheet capacity and so forth. These are things that Professor is more versed in and has written about extensively. How do you think these two interact? How do we have tremendous amounts of issuance of debt? At the same time, it seems like the financial system's capacity, the elasticity of the balance sheets to absorb that is not as great as it once was before the great financial Crises.
1: Okay, well, so I would say, first of all, in terms of debt issuance, well, it's always the case that what matters when a government issues debt is what is it doing for it for, right? I mean, a lot of economies are facing desperate needs of infrastructure investment, right? And those pay good returns, right? To the government itself, basically, to the society, to the economy. They help us grow. I always think it's a mistake. I mean, it's always a mistake to just focus on on deficit spending. Like it's not the deficit is not the issue. The question is, what are you doing with the money? Right. And, you know, all, of course, this is going to vary country by country. I, I think that any deficit spending like associated with things like the Inflation Reduction Act and its real efforts to address climate change issues and to create a shift in our infrastructure in that way to me most of that is likely to pay some good dividends right so therefore i i I just i just don't see it as a matter of concern for bond valuation because if it's good investment then it's just going to increase the economic value of the united states or whichever country is issuing the debt and, and and it's just your bond valuations will be completely robust to that that's the deficit spending side now, when you talk about the ability of balance sheets to absorb the debt, I think you need to be really careful because when you talk about lower capacity and all this, that's all short-term, right? Those are, that's that's, that's the market management of the issue of debt and the placement of it with long-term investors, right? So it doesn't really speak at all. Our, our dealer balance sheets do not speak at all to the capacity or the interest of long-term debt investors in investing in the debt. And again, and I think that's one of the reasons why infrastructure investment by a government, is it, it basically is taken very well. And then that debt is easily absorbed in the market because you have the long-term investors who are willing to to do that. When it comes to this whole issue of the intermediation of what's going on in debt markets, and therefore like the short-term side of the market where, you know, how do you your different bumps where you need your dealer balance sheets to help you move from one point in the market to another, you're getting into these issues of structural instability created by the repo market, right? And, and the fact that you can get a, the, the structure itself, the contractual structure of the repurchase agreement can create in a situation where essentially large investors and large groups of investors end up being forced sellers in the market, either because they need to raise the funds to pay back, to, to pay the calls, the margin calls that they're receiving, or actually because they're foreclosed upon and the, and the assets are then sold, right? And, and, and so you have this situation where we can get, an, in, a, even in our long-term treasury markets, as we saw in March 2020, an imbalance between the buyers and the sellers in the market right? And dealers don't have the capacity to deal with that. I I always think it's a bit of a red herring to say it's because of the regulatory changes. Yes, the regulatory changes did shift the capacity of dealers to bear some of this risk. But the truth is, in an imbalanced markets, dealers have always hung up the phone, right? You know, this has been going on since the beginning of time with dealers. If they see a situation where there's a huge imbalance between sellers and buyers, it's not the dealers who are going to absorb the losses, and it never has, right? Who
0: is it, the central banks?
1: Well, in the past, it actually would, I mean, in other words, the the central banks wouldn't even have stepping in into that kind of a situation. And I think this is, this is the key thing, which I think very few people actually recall. Before the 1980s, almost all of your dealers were partnerships with full liability, personal liability. Their homes and their yachts were on the right, right line, right? So the way they managed their risk was a completely different planet from the way risk is managed by the corporations today who just they just don't have very much on the line. Right. And when you read about the risk managed practices, risk management practices of these partnerships, you know, your Goldman Sachs or, you know, a a lot of these like the risk management practices back, you know, in the 1970s and the 1960s, they would essentially allow the prices. You know, in other words, they would make sure that the risk wasn't sitting on their balance sheet and you would they would they, they would have to be facilitating the price changes that are going forward to keep themselves out of the risk. Right. So that they, that, that's, they're not, their role was not to stabilize prices on financial markets if there wasn't an underlying buying or selling interest. In other words, it was very short term, the amount that they're doing to stabilize prices, right? And I think one of the things that was going on in those markets is there was more structural stability in the market. Right, you didn't have the reliance on repurchase agreements that we have now. That is basically a 1990s and later phenomenon. And I mean, it's in the 2000s that has become this core thing with the way our financial markets function in terms of the reliance on the treasuries and the repurchase agreement market. There, so that's a very new thing. So, so the dealers, first of all, the dealers are structurally completely different because they're corporations with a lot less on the line, and that's why the central banks need to get in because they're not going to manage their risk in the same way, and. Then secondly, because of the growth of repurchase agreements, and when I say the growth of repurchase agreements, I'm also talking about the way derivatives collateral is managed because essentially they have very similar contractual terms when you're talking about derivatives exposures versus repurchase agreements. And there's a flow of collateral between derivatives and repurchase agreements that's kind of structural in our modern financial system. That whole structure is very much a late 90s to 2000s structure. Right? So that's why your central banks need to set, step in to support it at this point is because there's a, this new system that is very heavily reliant on collateral. And when you're talking about repurchase agreements and again, this derivatives collateral system, you're actually very much talking about The big banks, the dealer banks, but this is taking place on the FDIC insured bank balance sheet, right? You know, if you're talking about the US banks, right? You know, the, the, the repo intermediation is not, at least big parts of it are taking place. And I mean, if you can just look at this by looking at the call reports, for example, JP Morgan being one of the big ones, JP Morgan is kind of part of the creation of the modern repo market if you really want to think about it i discussed that in one of my papers but a lot this is taking place on the commercial bank balance sheet a huge amount of of this so there's liquidity there's literally bank liquidity flowing into the repo market and affecting how the asset price mechanism asset pricing mechanism is working on whatever is repoed which these days can even include like 20 year government bonds and this kind of thing and so The reason why we have our central banks stepping in is because of the way this current financial structure that is so collateral-based, but collateral-based on a very short-term basis, where there's always that threat of foreclosing on the collateral and selling it out, which creates this forced selling kind of dynamic that you see periodically. And then the central banks need to step in to support prices because there's nothing else in the system that can support it. But there never has been. Like, I mean, it is the only reason why we need the central bank stepping in now is because of the structure of our system with its reliance on the collateral in this way. So then actually when we talk about why are the central banks continuing to do quantitative tightening, I have to admit, I think one of the good things about the central banks continuing to commit to quantitative tightening is that when you think about this system and the degree to which the central banks support it and how they are going to support it, quantitative tightening is a statement that the position of the central bank is not as a buyer in these markets, right? And I think that's kind of used almost as a signal to financial markets that if we end up in one of these liquidity spirals, you're going to force the central bank to do a bit of a reversal of position. And that's something that we saw, for example, in September 2022 with the Bank of England, where we had the liability-driven investment structures that started to fall apart. And then we started to see in the guilts, you started to see one of these sell-off events And the Bank of England did step in, even though its official position was quantitative tightening, but the way the Bank of England stepped in was extremely circumscribed and extremely careful. It was essentially time limited, and they went and they told the firms that were most implicated in what was going on, they needed to take measures to solve their situation before the buying program ended. And, yeah, I mean, you know, there, was, there were very clearly clear limits on what the Bank of Moon was willing to do, in part because it was forced into a buying position when it was actually had a posture of quantitative tightening, right? And, and, and to me, that's a good thing because it's the central banks making it clear to markets that they're not going to be too responsive. They're going to do what needs to be done, but they're going to put very clear limits on it. So it's just enough to stabilize the system. And somebody who probably really didn't want to lose money is going to lose money, which is going to mean that those people who are at risk of losing money in the future will try to avoid getting themselves into that position, which is what you really want markets to do. That's how markets are supposed to work, right? They're supposed to be taking proactive measures to make sure you're not going to be in part of one of these selling cycles because it's actually the individual actors in markets who are supposed to be bearing the losses, right? The central bank stepping in to support the price is something that it does to keep the financial markets from falling apart. But it's not something that's ever comfortable for the Fed. It's never comfortable for the Bank of England. They don't actually want to be forced into this position. And I think the quantitative tightening posture actually helps them send a good signal to financial markets that if we're forced into this position, we're going to circumscribe it as much as possible. And one of you guys is going to lose money. And I think that's a good thing.
0: Hey, everyone, we're about to get back in the action. But before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, we're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stablecoins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated forward guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG20 to get 20% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode. So gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks. Let's get back to the interview. Yeah, and I wonder if we could draw a distinction between uh, balance sheets used to finance market making for treasuries and collateral and then ultimately to warehouse and to own the collateral. For example, like Goldman Sachs, they are making a market in U.S. Treasury securities and they are, you know, if not the, the biggest player, you know, one of the biggest players there. When it comes to warehousing, obviously, I'm sure they have billions of dollars of positions, but they're not, you know, they they, they are not a reservoir of excess deposits because they're, you know, they're not a bank in the same way Bank of America is a bank. Bank of America, they've got a trading desk also like J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, and and JP Morgan, they are market makers, but they has a huge reservoir of, I mean, I think a, a half a trillion dollars of excess deposits that goes into, ultimately. When I think when Joseph was saying balance sheet, he didn't mean market making, or maybe he meant that as well. But also, who's going to fundamentally own this? Own this um, stuff as well. And then you know, we, we haven't talked about it, but I'm you know, Professor, I think of, of your work on the collateral effect and how you know, unexpected changes in interest rates. Would severely impact the values of let's say a twenty year treasury bond posted as collateral and how that might interfere with collateral markets. I, I wonder it's interesting that you know we've had a huge surge in interest rates, and to my knowledge, at least you know to the general public, there's been no blow up in the, the repo markets. Joseph, do, do you have any thoughts on that as well? It might it have something to do with the, the Fed's standing repo facility and then also the reverse repo facility, which is kind of, you know, as I learned from you, how the Federal Reserve controls the interest rates. And then also we can you know talk about the decline in the reverse repo facility.
2: I think that surprises a lot of people that we've raised interest rates so much. And it seems like the financial system functions well, right? I think if you ask people two years ago, what would happen if the Fed raised rates to 5.5%, They would talk about a huge recession, huge blow up and so forth. But, you know, that that didn't really happen. Economic growth seems fine. Financial markets seem fine. And it looks like we're making all time highs today. When when nearly looking at the repo market, it's just not going to blow up because there's a lot of money there. So you have, like you suggested, Jack, you have the reverse repo facility that has a lot of cash in there that is being lent. Uh, to anyone who wants to borrow money in the repo market. Right now, it looks like it's about seven, eight 800000000000 billion. So if anyone who wants in the repo market wants to borrow money, they can, you know, you can just like hundreds of billions of dollars there. So there's really no reason for it to blow up. And even if that went to zero, the Fed also has this new standing repo facility where it's basically willing to lend unlimited quantities to anyone who wants to borrow at at a higher than market rate.
1: Yeah, I don't know that I would go for it's been fixed. I have to admit that, okay, so the collateral supply effect paper was written in 2020, and I think the the most recent draft is like August 2020. I think the main reason why we didn't see the effect that I described there when interest rates rose was because of the COVID debt issues, right? In other words, the collateral supply increased so much during COVID, right? that actually there, uh, well, there was all collateral available at like, we've noticed a fair amount of it is held on bank balance sheets. There was just, it completely changed the amount of stress that was likely to be created by shrinking the collateral supply, right? Because essentially, gosh i'm not going to get the numbers complete but there was such a massive increase in like treasury debt and in, in in gilts and that kind of thing that actually the collateral supply expanded before we went through the interest rate cycling tightening of it now i will also say the quantitative tightening has been used by central banks to manage the collateral supply effect because essentially The Bank of England, at least I'm very clear on this, I have to admit, I haven't paid enough attention to the Fed to see exactly how the Fed was managing it. But the Bank of England was doing the sales where the market needed the money, right? So it was actually looking at where is it? that people are feeling a little bit of tightness in the market where it seems to need more collateral. And the Bank of England would feed that with its quantitative tightening sales to make sure that that collateral was available, right? And so it's basically looking at across the curve and figuring out where to meet the needs of the market when it's doing quantitative tightening. So I think also you should not underestimate the degree to which carefully managed quantitative tightening policies have actually been used to manage the collateral supply effect and to make sure that we don't see any blow-ups. I have been, I would certainly say that when we talk about standing repo facilities and reverse repo facilities, I don't see them as solving the problem that arises on from the collateral supply effect, I think that structurally it could still occur in a different environment. Right now, I think we still have enough of the safe treasury and gilt and bund collateral that we do. It's not a big concern right now. That doesn't mean that that's going to be true five or 10 years down the line, right? You know, everything changes and it can change quite dramatically. So I, I, I think this is still something to keep an eye on. And the reason the standing repo facility doesn't address this is that the interest rate it targets Isn't the right interest rate. And there's, you know, this is kind of the work that Daniela Gabor has done on the ECB in particular. But when the Fed or the ECB engages in a repurchase agreement type transaction, it's actually buying into the market based valuation of the asset. And therefore, there's the underlying yield on the asset that is simply incorporated as a market based price into how. The repo into what and in, in what collateral is in the repo, right? And targeting the interest rate on the repo itself does does nothing to target the interest rate on the underlying asset, right? So I think that's the thing you've got to be a little. I mean, or nothing might have been too strong. It it has a, if it, the effect that it has is likely to be very small. And so if you end up in one of these situations where you have a hedge fund or a pension fund that is a forced seller of collateral you can still get into some bad dynamics. I do think that the fact that the central banks are completely on top of what has happened in the past, they have seen what's happened, and they have this quantitative tightening posture, I think they can, can work to try and offset some of those kind of proactively because they've seen what's happened. So I do think that, that it, it won't surprise me if it's reasonably well managed, but I wouldn't say that it's something that we can say is completely taken care of and we don't need to worry about any more in the future.
2: Professor, can you briefly describe the collateral supply effect that you mentioned and that you wrote about in your paper?
1: Essentially, it's just a function of the duration of your long-term assets. So if you're going to look at a 20-year treasury bond, And well, so and and then it has a duration and I'm probably not going to get this quite right. I don't remember this off the top of my head, but it has a duration of like 10 or 11 or something like that. It has it has quite a long duration. What that means is that a small, you know, a a 10 percent or a 10 base, a 10 percent change in the interest rate or a 10 basis point move. Right. Is actually going to have a significant price effect. On the value of that twenty year bond, right, so you're actually going to see your twenty year bond fall in value by say one percent just because of a ten basis point move, you know, and that's a pretty small you know well all right it it it, it, it it's a moderate sized interest rate move, right What that means is that when you have big shifts in interest rates right. The value of the total portfolio outstanding, like everybody who's holding that 20 year bond is watching the value of their collateral fall, right? Anybody who's been relying on 20 year treasuries as a funding mechanism. So let's say you're actually talking about a full 1% change in the interest rate, which would, I mean, that would be a dramatic change for a 20-year bond, but also something that we've seen happen over a period of months during a Fed tightening cycle in the past, right? It's not unheard of. Um, you know, Then you're talking about a 10% fall in the value of that position. If you've been relying on that as funding, well, you just have 10% less collateral to support your funding. So that's the kind of thing where, let's see. So what really happens is that it's the participants who are at the very edge. They're kind of have been pushing their funding to the limits, right? That small change catches that one participant who's kind of just been at the limit. But then now they've got a collateral call. They've got a margin call. They need to meet it somehow. And they very likely might need to sell the position. They sell the position. What's the pressure on the uh, price of that? Asset when they sell it with well, the pressure is downwards, the interest rate will tend to rise. So if you've got a bunch of these small players, all of whom have to well, then that small movement gets magnified into a larger movement because they have to sell, And now you're catching the next range of participants who have been funding, right? They actually had a bigger cushion, but that cushion has been caught. And so now they need to sell, right? And eventually you can get these very dramatic moves. In interest rates, just because you start, there are so many parties who are funding on the basis of a repurchase agreement type collateral, and these are like your hedge funds or something. So one hedge fund blows up, and the sales of that hedge fund end up tr- catching the other hedge funds who had similar uh, positions, and then those other hedge funds might need to sell, and you can end up with a fairly big selling problem with with, with that, and then you can end up with a fairly dramatic collateral supply effect because you have a big move in interest rates that has been triggered by the, the sales that themselves are part of the fact there was a small interest move in interest rates. At some point, you can actually have this, this, this situation where the value of the collateral has fallen by, say, 10 or 20 percent. And, you know, and, and, and then that creates a problem for a lot of players. And then, you know, if we to, we're talking about the collateral supply effect more generally, Without even having these kinds of de- dynamics, just the fact that it, the Fed was raising interest rates, there was a shift in the yield on bonds, which, as uh, Joseph noted, was, you know, he was a bond bearer for a long time. S V B got caught because it essentially was its interest rate controls were extraordinarily weak. I mean to the degree that it's fairly easy to condemn their management of their interest rate portfolio. They should have done a better job. The regulators were telling them they should be doing a better job and they chose not to worry about that risk. So they got caught by the change, but okay. by the fact that the value of their collateral fell in value and also the fact that they had such a their, their funding position was such that they didn't have stable deposits instead they had deposits that were a lot more flighty. Professor, what uh, we've seen over the
2: past month is like the complete reversal of a decline in price. The prices have gone up significantly. Mm -hmm. So does that, in your view, make the financial system a lot safer now, now that we've had this huge appreciation of collateral, basically everyone has more equity, so to speak?
1: Well, I don't know whether I'd say it makes it safer. It means that all the players who are funding in this matter have a better cushion. I think one of the questions that you need to look at is you know for some participants that might mean that they borrow more money right they may decide to use up that cushion so you don't know you don't you you need to look a little bit more closely at how they're managing that 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 cushion as well but then it's always this issue of you know how are, you have to be really careful about what your position you're taking on interest rates and interest rate risk and basically one of the main ways for banks to fail is to punt on interest rates in an in, inappropriate manner, and obviously it's not only the banks that do that it's good you know it, 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 it it's helpful to those who rely on collateral to have their collateral increase in value obviously but then you know it's just it, it's always a matter of is it safe to rely on that collateral value staying where it is, or are you going to protect yourself against the possibility that it goes? Down again and yeah I mean it, it, I, I guess i don't I, I don't view the movement of the price itself as a particularly stabilizing factor. I think that the key thing is that we have a system that is prone to creating selling pressure that The central banks, I think, are now, like I said, I think the way they manage quantitative tightening, I think they're very much aware of the collateral supply effects. I think they're very much aware of the selling pressure that our collateralized system makes now. So they're actually actively working to manage it and probably even paying some attention to financial market products that may be relying on the central bank to step in like the liability driven investment strategy of the pension funds in the UK. I think they're much more alert to the dangers of this. So I would say that if there's a financial stability effect, it's the central banks paying a lot more attention to these effects and not just because the collateral went up in value.
0: You you talked about hedge fund, I guess, with like an inverted yield curve. I don't think of banks really as betting, you know, taking long duration trades in the repo market because, you know, in the repo market, you're paying basically so To get what whatever the ten year yield is, so it's a negative carry. I think of it of those banks as funding themselves with much 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 cheaper funding i e deposit costs and that's how they got into trouble in in twenty and and twenty one well professor, thank you so much for for coming on. sharing your insights. I guess give us a little bit of a glimpse we, we referenced it earlier of your work on how the central banks are funding pri- private equity and then collateralized loan obligations in particular, just on, just on the, the plumbing, I mean, we referenced you know, the moral hazard point earlier, but what do you think about the structure of the collateralized loan obligation? And would you agree with the claim that it is more stable than its much-troubled cousin, the collateralized debt obligation, which were basically collateralizing unstable, risky assets of subprime mortgages, Whereas is loan obligations, and and I should say, I ju- recently spoke with the CEO of a company that's the world's biggest investor in uh, equity, and you know you don't get to be the world's biggest investor in CLo equity by by being bearish on them. You know you know you know his perspective, but uh, that basically the assets that underline the CLo are very good assets, and as he put it, companies pay their bills, and that the default rate of CLos, I think on on senior loans, spiked at around eleven percent during the Great Financial Crisis, and CLos actually performed very, very well in 2008 after a sufficiently long period of time because of the reinvestment period or and CLO equity, I should say. Yeah. Wh- how, how would you asc- ascertain, how would you assess that that sort of bull case for, for CLOs? If you were to poke holes in it, what, what can you find?
1: Okay. Well, so if I were to poke holes in it, I would basically say all right. Compared to the worst of the CDO structures in the Great Financial Crisis, yes, CLOs were not like CDO squared. You know, they 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 were not alongside the worst of those structures. But if you're talking about your garden variety CDO, which usually didn't just contain but usually contained a Mix of uh, different assets, some um, some of which were actually prime mortgages and this kind of thing. So there was a there was usually a, a fairly broad range of assets in the typical CDO. I would say CLOs and CDOs looked fairly similar, and I think to me the big difference in the way they performed is okay. That essentially the the. CLOs had the advantage that most of the debt that was in the CLOs that got into trouble in 2008 was issued in 2006 and 2007. And as such, it did not need to be refinanced until... 2000, basically 2000 was when you were starting to get into the Great Wall of Debt. Like, if you look at the press, the press on from 2009, you literally can Google the Great Wall of Debt that they were all worried about was going to be coming, and basically it was going to hit. 2012 was going to be the bad year,
0: right? I got got a, you know, that's good copy. And I think there was even a movie about that, 2012, right?
1: (laughs) Was there? (laughs) 2012. Anyhow, what happened there, so, so basically the CLOs had this advantage that They basically were not going to get into trouble until the principal need to be paid off. And so they had until 2012, basically, 2011, 2012. That was that they kind of had a built in longer structure than the CDOs, right? Uh, subprime mortgages typically needed to be refinanced every two years, sometimes f- faster right and once the housing values went down man it it became even worse right and c l o yeah c l o s did not have that problem there what you didn't have the same kind of way you were comparing asset values to the value of the loan that you had in the mortgages, and you'd also you also just had this long window and when I look at fed policy and not why did the fed you know lower interest rates initially why did the fed get into quantitative easing and support of market, mortgage markets initially a lot of that was initially about mortgage markets but then you get to 2010 2011 in particular and it's actually around then that the fed is saying oh we need to have prolonged low interest rate policy right and that is very much about the corporate sector That's about the fact that there were a lot of heavily indebted firms that had taken out these leverage loans in the 2006 and 2007 um, boom. And they were going to end up having to refinance and the situation was going to be really tight for them if interest rates were expected to go up. And the Fed, if you look at their minutes, there, there really is a concern about the corporate sector and what's going on. And low for long is about protecting in my view, the corporate sector. It's no longer about mortgages. By the time you're reaching 2011, the mortgage situation is not what's first and foremost in the Fed's mind. The low interest rates were not first and foremost about mortgages. They were about the corporate debt situation in the U.S. And this continued until essentially the whole wave of debt was refinanced. And they only started raising interest rates, once we were through everything that was predicted in that great wall, all those great wall of de- debt argument or articles from 2000, right? And then there's work by Ludovic Philippon, is, who, who actually went and said, oh, what made some of these great private equity deals great in this period? And he does the math. And to be honest, basically the Fed bailed them out. If you're heavily indebted, and interest rates are low for long, bottom for a very long period. That's a huge boost to your company value. And it doesn't help the firms that are not heavily indebted in the same way. It, it's literally a subsidy to the heavily indebted firms to have that policy. And it was a subsidy to private equity. And I don't, I'm not saying that the Fed got into it because it wanted to subsidize private equity. The Fed was completely worried about the real economy and the fact that there would have been bankruptcies if it didn't take this policy. But the effect of low for long is to subsidize your most heavily indebted firms. Yeah, so basically I'm going to say I, I would say that one of the reasons CLOs have performed so well is because of the support they have gotten. And then then you look at 2020, I mean, CLOs are literally on the, the purchasing list for the Fed. They supported junk bond ETFs. I mean, in, others, in 2020, you know, it's, it's much more direct support for the heavily indebted firms. And I have to admit, when I look at SBB. A lot of a, a lot of SVB's clients, the depositors, are essentially part of this whole private equity sector. I mean, and more broadly, you know, the the, the financed by uh, these kinds of firms. That bailout of depositors that took place with the SB as SVB bailout. I mean, uninsured depositors have been they they've taken huge amounts of losses like repeatedly since the 2008 crisis you can just look it up on the FDIC website the FDIC is not at all shy about imposing losses on uninsured depositors and yet all of those private equity connected firms got bailed out in the March SVB bailout and 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 that that to me was really direct and really questionable. And by the way, one of those stable coins you mentioned also was one of the big bailouts, right? And, and I, that's just jaw-dropping to me. I mean, that stable coin should have gone right down the drain, right? Because it was relying on uninsured deposits in a bank that went under, right? So Fed's support of this whole sector is huge. And I have to admit, if you're going to say, CLO CLOs going to continue to be a good investment? I think what you're really looking at is not a market-based phenomenon. It's a bet on how regulators will react in the future and the degree to which they can continue to rely on load-for-long type policies in the event that these heavily indebted firms are likely to go bankrupt. So I think it's much more a regulatory play. I don't think it's a market play. And I'm not going to sit here and say it's a bad investment because that's not my skill set. Yeah, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I do think that the gamble is not a gamble on how markets are behaving. It's a gamble on how regulators and how the central banks will behave.
0: Very interesting. Yeah, Stablecoin did have deposits at a Silicon Valley Bank and actually the author of a BIS paper on Stablecoins. I, I talk about that. So folks, folks should stay tuned. For that, a very interesting point about the private equity connection with Silicon Valley Bank. I think certainly a lot of their de- de- were in the venture capital world and private yeah. equity, uh, definitely. But they also made loans to private equity. Basically, it's called a capital call line business. Interestingly, th- those those loans, I think in the history of Silicon Valley Bank, one of them, those loans went bad. So again, it was not a credit issue. What, what sank Silicon Valley Bank in terms on the asset side was, was those uh, uh, duration stuff. But what we'll put, we, we, we uh, you know, F4 Guidance and, and Joseph, Really look forward to reading your paper on private equity and, and the Fed. And we will uh, share a link uh, in the description to, to all of your other great work. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for, for coming on and, and joining us at Forward Guidance. People um, can, and can follow you on Twitter at uh, Sissoko. Joseph, I'm going to give you the final word. Because you said you're a bond bear, I gather that you are more bullish on stocks than bonds. You know, it doesn't take a, a lot to, to reach that conclusion. But are you overall bullish on stocks as you have been this year? And in particular, I can ask you about maybe bank stocks or is this, you know, bank, are bank stocks going to lead us out? What is your sort of your outlook? And if on bank stocks, you don't have a view, that's, that's fine.
2: Yeah, I don't have a view on bank stocks, but I agree with the professor's viewpoint that a lot of things today in markets depend on policy, not just central bank policy, but fiscal policy as well. So when I take a step back and I see that we continue to spend a lot of money, I think that's very positive for equity markets. And at the same time, If you look at policy, it seems like the central banks of the world are beginning a cutting cycle. That's also positive for risk markets. Heading into next year, I'm really positive on the equity market. I think we're just going to chug along. I think, honestly, I think that it has a lot of tailwinds. We have an economy that's fine. We have a fiscal policy that remains loose. And we have a monetary policy that's easing. Seems like the stars are aligned.
0: Oh, n- nice Powell reference. Oh uh, Well, uh, chug- chugging along, we'll leave it there. Professor and Joseph, thank you both so much for, for coming on, sharing your insights. Thank you, everyone, for watching and have a happy holidays and a great new year. Bye. Thank you. Forward Guidance, the program you just enjoyed, hopefully, can be viewed on YouTube at BlockWorks Macro or heard as a podcast on Apple Podcast and Spotify. Episodes are typically released on Apple and Spotify a few hours before they air on YouTube. Please leave a review on Apple Podcast if you feel so inclined.